Open up to the book of Deuteronomy. We're, we're looking at the very end of this incredible book. It's the end of Deuteronomy. It's the end of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, the books of Moses, because Deuteronomy is the end of Moses. It was January 31st, 1892. The most famous preacher on the planet had suddenly died. He was 57 years old. His ministry in a day without any kind of mass media beyond the printing press had become world famous. He was the pastor of London Metropolitan Tabernacle. He was a voluminous writer. He was a accomplished theologian and he had gained the moniker, the nickname, the Prince of Preachers. And in that cold January day in Menton, France, where Spurgeon would often go to holiday and to recover for his health's sake, uh, everyone assumed he would return as he did each holiday with restored health. But in 1892, Spurgeon succumbed to his illnesses and died president was his assistant and his, his dear wife, Susanna. And what would unfold over the next few weeks was nothing short of a spectacle. Eleven days later, historic crowds would swell the streets of South London as the funeral procession would come through. But it wasn't one funeral. This beautiful olive wood casket that held the body of Spurgeon, was brought all the way from France to London, uh, from Menton to Norwood Cemetery, 839 miles. It was a journey in total that would take 265 hours uh, with train and horse carriage, and the the men of the church were involved. Uh, He had multiple services in his honor, Uh, The second uh, funeral was for the pastor's college only. There was a processional viewing with 60,000 Londoners estimated that went through the church to walk by and pay respects to Spurgeon's uh, remains on that beautiful olive wood casket was Spurgeon's Bible laying open on top of it. And it was open to Isaiah 45, 22, which says, look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no one else. And so as all these mourners passed by, uh, they saw those words in his Bible. It was two memorial services in France that kicked the whole thing off. Six memorial services in London. When his body arrived in London, it was greeted by all the elders of the church, all the deacons of the church, 10 carriages, black carriages with brown horses, pouring rain, mingled with tears. Uh, it, was, it was quite an event to remember a man who had impacted millions and millions of people's lives through his sermons uh, written and dispersed all over the world and who had faithfully served the Lord in his church and had ministered to so many people through the word of God. The loss of Spurgeon was incalculable, but it was nothing compared to the loss of Moses. 
the death of Moses has been looming over the book of Deuteronomy. Everyone, including Moses, knew that he was going to die. It was that scene in the wilderness in the final third of Moses' life. Remember, Moses died at age 120. And his life can be divided into 40-year sections. The first 40, he was a prince in Egypt, an advocate for his Hebrew people. But after the murder of the, the Egyptian man, he was scandalized and chased and hounded, and, and he sought refuge in Midian as a shepherd. He lived in the wilderness, taking care of actual sheep for another 40 years. It's where he'd meet his wife and, and start a family and have an encounter with God that would change his life forever. The final 40 years are culminate with the book of Deuteronomy, but it's the Exodus years. It's when Moses led the people out of Egypt and uh, went toe-to-toe with Pharaoh. And then after receiving this word of judgment from God that the, the generation would have to die in the wilderness, he led them around the wilderness waiting for the entirety of that generation to die. And in one sad event, which we'll see a little bit of tonight, Moses himself was also excluded from entering into the promised land. That brings us to the book of Deuteronomy, the book that we've been looking at for five weeks on Sunday nights, a book that's worthy of 50 weeks because there's so much wonderful grace in it. And I hope it's been a surprise to you because Deuteronomy isn't just a a second law, deuteros meaning two, namos meaning law. There's so much more than that. It's a second giving of the law. It's Moses preaching the law to the new generation as they're about to enter into the promised land. Finally, the disobedient and unbelieving generation unwilling to enter into the promised land because of their fear of the inhabitants had all died off in the wilderness. And now Moses serves as a prophet and a preacher and on the on the edge of the Jordan River in the plains of Moab, he addresses this massive uh, exodus of God's people, this new generation, and he once again reminds them of God's grace. He warns them as a prophet uh, the question that hangs over this entire generation, over the book of Deuteronomy, and over the eventual death of Moses is how will these people respond as they enter the land? Will they find God's blessing Or will they find God's curse? Will they live in covenant obedience or covenant disobedience? And in these final chapters of Deuteronomy, we see at least a glimmer of the answer to that question. But the bigger question that we get to answer tonight is a question that I think can be instructive for all of us. God's people are often so caught up in their own time, in their own history, that they forget about God's plan that suspends over all generations. And so the question I want to ask you tonight is, what do we have when we don't have Moses? That was the question that was on the people's minds. What do they have when they don't have Moses? And I want to give you three answers as we look at these two chapters. We'll actually start in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 48, uh, give you a little glimpse of the structure here. Uh, verse, chapter 32, verse 48, that final paragraph after Moses' song, which 
Pastor Jay handled very well last week, we now get a little bit of a narrative that serves as a bookend. You have this description of Moses breaking faith with God, why Moses was prohibited from entering into the promised land, the sin of Moses described, the the sentence put on Moses for his disobedience in, in verse 48 to the end of the chapter. And then you have a something that will probably look familiar to you if you've read the book of Genesis. You have the blessing of Moses, the man of God, a blessing he spoke to the sons of Israel before his death. And so you have Moses speaking a blessing over the 12 tribes of Israel. And that takes up the entirety of chapter 33. We won't be able to look at it in great detail, but I want to show you some highlights and what it tells us about what the people have when they won't have Moses anymore. And then finally, really in a almost a parenthesis-like way, after these blessings serve as an interruption in the narrative describing the death of Moses, chapter 34 gives us a eulogy of, of Moses. It's God's take on who Moses was and why he mattered, and it will help us answer our question as well. So let's dive right into this rich section of Scripture, and I'll try to handle it adequately, and I think there's lessons for all of us about trusting the Lord in trying times, trusting the Lord in times of great transition and upheaval, and how to look to God when we don't have anyone else to look to. So what do we have when we don't have Moses? Well, let's start with verse well, let me, let me just start with the outline. Number one, we have God's grace. We have, number one, we have God's grace. And for this, I want you to look at the beginning of chapter 33. Now, this is the blessing with which Moses, the man of God, blessed the sons of Israel before his death. This is incredible to hear the voice of Moses. The final speech of Moses is the culmination of a book of Moses' speeches. There's between three and five, depending on how you divide the book of Deuteronomy, speeches or sermons or expositions of the law that Moses gives to the people of God. And as he is preaching to them, you actually see, in my reading, a great change in Moses. You see some of the, the marks of early Moses in his first address He's frustrated with the people. In chapter four, you might remember he blames them and chastises them because he sees it that it's their fault that he can't enter into the promised land. And that classic anger, that temper of Moses comes out, that harsh side of Moses in that early address. But as the addresses continue and as Moses continues to equip and minister to the people of Israel as they're going to enter into the promised land, as they've proven faithful in these initial skirmishes on the plains of Moab about to enter in, and their first big task will be the conquering of this massive, ancient, impressive walled city called Jericho. He's prepping them for that, and you see Moses just continue to become more and more aware of the grace of God in his giving the law to the people. And what Moses gives them in this final speech and final words matter greatly, don't they? Everyone always thinks about what are the final words of a famous person on their deathbed? Well, what are they going to say? In Martin Luther's day, it was even 
important to people in the medieval age, how a person looked when they died. If a person looked as if they were uh, tormented at death and the people said there was no assurance they went to heaven. Uh, If a person looked peaceful and content at death, they were quite sure that the person must have entered into heaven. Even that kind of superstitious look at the moment of death reminds us that the moment of death, the, the final things you say, the final uh, comportment of a person as they die, does tell us something. And what we see from Moses in his very final speech is Moses really is captured by God's grace. And when they don't have Moses, they will have the grace and favor of God. What does it look like? We'll look at verse two. And he said, Yahweh came from Sinai and dawned on them from Seir and shone forth from Mount Paran. And he came from the midst of 10,000 holy ones at his right hand there was flashing lightning for them. I want you to skip forward and look at the end of this, this blessing, this statement of of prophecy and of promise as Moses speaks to the the leaders of the tribes and the people of the tribes. Look at verse 26 of the same chapter. There is none like the God of Jeshurun. That's a a pet name for Israel. It's it's an affectionate name for, for Israel who rides the heavens to your help and through the skies in his majesty. The eternal God is a dwelling place, and underneath are the everlasting arms. And he drove out the enemy from before you and said, Destroy, so Israel dwells in security. The fountain of Jacob secluded in a land of grain and new wine. His heavens also drop down dew. Blessed are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by Yahweh, who is the shield of your help and the sword of your majesty, so your enemies shall cringe before you, and you shall tread upon their high places. Wrapping up this promise of blessings to the tribes is a promise of God's grace. And the way that Moses first describes God's grace is as God's present, his presence, his availability, his accessibility. Look again at verse two. The Lord came from Sinai, Sinai is where the Ten Commandments were originally received. Those ten words that summarize all that God desires his people to be. They were a a summary of the law. Jesus made us a summary of the law when he said, you love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind. He was quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 6, and he was reminding us that love for others is based in love for God and that the tablets of the law the entirety of God's law and rules for his people can be summed up in the reality that God gave us his word. And so the reference to Sinai, the Lord came from Sinai, means that Yahweh has, in a sense, showed up here, here at the River Jordan, here on the edge of the promised land, here with the encamped people, here about to be with them in their battles. And and according to verse 26 and 27, he's going to fight with them. He's going to bear up under them with his everlasting arms, verse 27, that he rides like in a chariot to their assistance and help, verse 26, that they'll be secure because of God's attendance of their needs. And so though Moses will be gone, and though the people know that they'll no longer have 
their beloved leader, their pastor, their prophet, their preacher, their their, their leader through the Exodus, the one who stood in the gap for them, they will have God's grace. And God's grace, God's favor, God's acceptance looks like God's presence, his accessibility. That was one of the most beautiful things that we learn in the book of Deuteronomy and in the Old Testament about Yahweh is he's not restricted as the other gods and goddesses of the ancient peoples to particular geographical places. He shows up, he's able to go and to be, whether it's with the exiles at the River Kebar in Babylon, God can show up anywhere because God is everywhere and he makes his presence known as a way of reminding us of his grace and so God's grace looks like his presence What else does God's grace look like? Verse three, indeed, he loves the people and all thy holy ones are in thy hand and they followed in thy steps. Everyone receives thy words. This is another reminder that this book, so often perceived as a book of law, really is a book of grace and grace is based in love. God is the God of Israel because he chose Israel. You'll remember back in Deuteronomy 7, when we learned about the doctrine of election, when God says to his people that his love for them, his gracious dealings with them are really based in and rooted and grounded and anchored not in anything in Israel, but in God, the one who delivers them, the one who chose them and the one who loves them. Deuteronomy 7, 6 You're a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Yahweh did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples for you were the fewest of all peoples. But because Yahweh loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, Yahweh brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that Yahweh your God, he is God, the faithful God who keeps his covenant and his loving kindness to a thousandth generation with who those love him and keep his commandments, but repays those who hate him to their faces to destroy them. He will not delay with him who hates him. He will repay him to his face. Therefore, you shall keep his commandment and the statutes and the judgments, which I'm commanding you today to do them. It's that same concept God's grace is rooted and grounded not in an arbitrary choice. God's grace is rooted and grounded not in some kind of blind and unthinking doctrine of election, but a doctrine of election that is rooted and grounded in the love of God. And you can ask yourself, why are you a Christian? And it's not because of something in you, it's because of something in God. That's why grace is grace. That's why the gospel is free. That's why righteousness is alien. That's why Jesus is glorious. We love him because he first loved us. 
And that's what's on display. Moses is going to go away and the people will no longer be the objects of his love and pastoral affection and prophetic care and ministry and wisdom as he judged them and helped them and served them and led them through their difficult wilderness years. They will no longer be the recipients of Moses' gracious dealings, but they will always be the recipients of God's grace, of Yahweh's presence, and of Yahweh's love. Well, how else do we see the grace of God? Well, we see it in God's Word. In God's Word, look at verse 4. Remember the end of verse 3. They followed in thy steps. Everyone receives thy words. Moses charged us with a law, a possession for the assembly of Jacob. He was king in Jerusalem, and the heads of the people were gathered, the tribes of Israel, together. And then he launches into these these blessings, but it's not until we receive a summary of what Deuteronomy is all about. Those ten commandments are reflective of the entirety of the, the way man is to respond to God's grace in their dealings with God in the first five words, and their dealings with one another in the second Five words. And so those two tablets summarize all of God's revelation. And I think Christians have a bias against old covenant law because we know that it can't make you righteous, that it, 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 you're going to fall short of trying to obey it, that it, it has this inability to save you. We think like Paul does in Galatians. But at the same time, we've read the Psalms and we know. Jesus' view of the Bible needs to be our view of the Bible. And Jesus believed the entirety of the Old Testament. Jesus and the apostles loved and revered and and preached the Old Testament. The Old Testament was the foundation of of the church, and it was the the early church's uh, Bible. That's what they were listening to when they gathered to worship. It was how they were shaped in their understanding of who God was and what God had done. And so they had a high view of, of Scripture. And so the beauty of the story of Deuteronomy is God is once again giving his people law. He's giving them leadership. He's giving them revelation. He's giving them his word. That's why David would say, oh, how I love thy law. And so when we see the Old Testament, we don't see dead words of commandments that merely show us that we're unable to save ourselves. What we ought to see first and foremost is the evidence of God's grace that he would choose to reveal himself at all. I mean, this in itself is mercy. This in itself is is a wonderful testimony to the very grace of God. I had a huge book next to the bed at my house that I forgot to bring, a big orange book. I lugged it up here the last time I preached, and I forgot to read of it and read of it. That was King James. <laughs> and I forgot it again. But as I was, it was, I was toweling off, I Googled it up, and I found the quote I was looking for. Thank God for the internet. There's a bunch of bad stuff on the internet, but there's also the quote I needed. Asher Nerva Paul, the library, in the 7th century BC, he was an emperor of Assyria, has all these texts. And in this 
this book, I found this ancient prayer written in the, I mean, we're talking 800 BC, something like that. Not written by anyone who knew the God of Israel, but written in a language called Sumerian, an ancient language. And this is a little repetitious, but I want to read you a prayer to, well, it's entitled, A Prayer to Every God. This is the kind of prayers that the contemporaries of Israel prayed to their gods. Listen to it. May the fury of my Lord's heart be quieted toward me. May the God who is not known be quieted toward me. May the goddess who is not known be quieted toward me. May the God whom I know or do not know be quieted toward me. May the goddess whom I know or do not know be quieted toward me. May the heart of my God be quieted toward me. May the heart of my goddess be quieted toward me. May my God and goddess be quieted toward me. May the God who has become angry with me be quieted toward me. May the goddess who's become angry with me be quieted toward me. In ignorance, I've eaten that forbidden of my God. In ignorance, I've set foot on that prohibited by my goddess. O Lord, my transgressions are many. Greater my sins. O my God, my transgressions are many. Greater my sins. O my goddess, my transgressions are many. Greater my sins. O God, whom I know or do not know, my transgressions are many. Greater my sins. O goddess, whom I know or do not know. My transgressions are many. Great are my sins. The transgression I have committed, indeed, I do not know. The sin I have done, indeed, I do not know. The forbidden thing I have eaten, indeed, I do not know. The prohibited place on which I have set foot, indeed, I do not know. The Lord in the anger of his heart looked at me. The God in the rage of his heart confronted me. When the goddess was angry with me, she made me become ill. The God whom I know or do not know has oppressed me. The goddess whom I know or I do not know has placed suffering on me. Although I am constantly looking for help, no one takes me by the hand. When I weep, they do not come to my side. I utter laments, but no one hears me. I am troubled. I am overwhelmed. I cannot see. Oh my God, merciful one, I address to you the prayer ever inclined to me. I kiss the feet of my goddess. I crawl before you. Oh long, oh my goddess, whom I know or do not know before your hostile heart will be quieted. Man is dumb. He knows nothing. Mankind, everyone that exists, what does he know? Whether he is committing sin or doing good, he does not even know. Oh my Lord, do not cast your servant down. He is plunged into the waters of a swamp. Take him by the hand. The sin that I have done, turn into goodness. The transgression I have committed, let the wind carry away. My many misdeeds strip off like a garment. Oh my God, my transgressions are seven times seven. Remove my transgressions. Oh my goddess, transgressions are seven times seven. Remove my transgressions. Oh God, whom I know or do not know, my transgressions are seven times seven. Remove my transgressions. Oh goddess, whom I know or do not know, my transgressions are seven times seven. Remove my transgressions. Remove my transgressions. I will sing your praise. May your heart, like the heart of a real mother, be quieted toward me like a real mother and a real father. May it be quieted toward me. How pathetic is that? How heartbreaking is that? What an indictment on lostness that grasps in the dark, and apart from divine revelation, is lost. 
you hear that ancient poem to any God and you'll never think, well, why is God giving us so much information about so many practical things in the book of Deuteronomy? The fact that God cares what his people ate, how his people lived, how they conducted their lives, their marriages, raised their children, worshiped him, offered sacrifices, and 10,000 other things are not primarily a burden from God showing you how unable you are. Primarily, revelation from God is evidence of God's grace. You see it that way? The fact that we have the word of God is such a treasure to us. And it was that way to Israel as well. And that's why it says in Deuteronomy 33, verse 3, everyone receives thy words. Moses charged us with a law. The people understood that they were stewards of something, something that was a gracious gift of God. And so they didn't have Moses for much longer, but they had God's grace because they had the promise of God's presence. They had God's love and compassion and mercy, and they had God's word. What else did they have if they didn't have Moses? Well, they have God's promises, and that takes us into this blessing section. And I'll just give you a little taste of it. Look at verse 6. May Reuben live and not die, nor his men be few. Some of the blessings are tiny, like that blessing. In Genesis 38, Jacob blesses his sons. Jacob, who became Israel, takes his 12 sons and individually blesses them. It's like a reading of his will and testament. It's got prophetic tones to it as he speaks to each son. Well, here Moses, like the patriarch of old, speaks to all 12 tribes, sort of. Simeon is missing because his, this is one's not by son, this is by tribe. They share a land allotment, various other reasons I could get into because Simeon did bad stuff, but we'll leave it there for tonight. Moses speaks like a father to the tribes, not to the individuals. The individuals are, are long dead and gone, but these tribes still remain. And to some of them, there, there are small words of blessings. Verse seven, he says to Judah, hear O Yahweh, the voice of Judah, and bring him to his people. With his hand he contended for them, and mayest thou be a help against his adversaries. These prayers are, are given, these blessings are given in the context of, of war. There's about to be a war. They're about to enter into the, the promised land and take possession of it. And so he speaks to the priestly class in verse 8, the, the Levites, and, and tells them that, they're to belong to the godly man. He reminds them of the work they did at Meribah, the same place where Moses would lose his blessing. They were the ones who had to deal uh, in judgment with their brother priests who had disobeyed Yahweh and blasphemed him with their false worship. And so they receive a blessing because of their, their past faithfulness and their observation of God's word and their keeping of God's covenant. The same goes with with Jacob, and then a blessing for him in verse 11 of Benjamin in verse 12. Uh, the longest blessing is, is aimed towards Joseph. It's kind of the center of gravity of these blessings. And it's a beautiful account of all that the promised land will afford them. But I think verse 16 is worth noting because it says, and with choice things of the earth and its fullness and the favor of him who dwelt in the bush, let it come to the head of Joseph. 
Here you are, Moses, speaking these blessings to these tribes, strengthening them, encouraging them. He won't be with them anymore. They won't have Moses and and the blessings of God that came from just being a part of Moses' special relationship with God, but they will have God's blessings. They'll have God's promises. And Moses pulls way back to Midian. None of these guys were there. He was all by himself. He was on the lamb. Pharaoh was going to kill him. And so he travels way out into the desert and he raises sheep for a living. And it's there where he first received his revelation from God. And remember how it happened? He had to take off his sandals because God chose to occupy a plant to set a bush on fire and to speak out of this inflamed bush without the bush ever burning, but this fiery theophany of God. And he calls and commissions Moses in that desert scene. And I love hearing Moses' final words as he blesses Jacob. He says, the favor of him who dwelt in the bush. That's a reference to Yahweh and his call of Moses, because Moses is gonna be gone, but Yahweh's not going anywhere. They'll still have God's promises. They'll still have God's blessings. And that's the beautiful thing about the end of Deuteronomy. Go back, I'm sure you looked at this verse last week, to chapter 32, verse 47. Remember these amazing words. It says, for it is not an idle word for you. Indeed, it is your life. Moses' song, the national anthem of Israel, is a song of, it's a harsh song, right? I mean, you, you heard it. It's a song of warning. It's a song of imprecation. It's a song that says, obey or else. And it ends with a reminder of how all God's words are. Verse 47, it's not an idle word, or you could translate that a, a failing word or a falling word. None of God's words fail. None of God's promises dry up. None of God's words are empty or meaningless or insignificant. All our lives, we've had people tell us things that were not true or that they intended to accomplish but never did. God has never and will never and cannot do that. All his blessings, and whether they're in the forms of these promises to the tribes and all of these words of prophecy that Moses speaks are words that cannot fail. And so they don't have Moses anymore, but they have a leader who's unseen, but who's always been with them generation after generation. He's incomparable, verse 26. There's none like the God of Jeshurun who rides the heavens to your help. This is the protection that comes from the blessing of God. And though they don't have Moses anymore, they have God's grace and they have God's promises. And then ultimately and finally, third, what do they have when they don't have Moses? Well, they have God himself. Go back to chapter 32. I'm gonna look at that last paragraph and then the final chapter very briefly. Verse 48 of chapter 32. They don't have Moses anymore. Well, the question that we would have is probably why don't they have Moses? Where's Moses going? Well, his death has loomed over this book because everyone knows God's judgment is on Moses. 
He's been disciplined by God. Look at verse 48. Yahweh spoke to Moses that very same day, the day of him singing the song. And then there's four imperative commands that you'll see in these verses. Verse 49, go up to this mountain of the Abraim, Mount Nebo, which is in the land of Moab, opposite Jericho. And then next imperative, and look at the land of Canaan, which I'm giving to the sons of Israel for a possession. And then a third command, then die. That's in the imperative, die on the mountain where you ascend. And then a fourth, be gathered to your people as Aaron, your brother, died on Mount Hor and was gathered to his people. Because you broke faith with me in the midst of the sons of Israel at the waters of Meribah Kadesh, in the wilderness of Zin, because you did not treat me as holy in the midst of the sons of Israel. For you shall see the land at a distance, but you shall not go there into the land which I am giving the sons of Israel. That's a depressing little paragraph at first read. The thing that I think strikes you when you read it is, why did God make Moses crawl up the mountain and look at the promised land? That's like me bringing you a birthday cake that you're totally allergic to. Check out how beautiful this birthday cake is. But it's made of flour, Tom Patton, and you're allergic to flour. Right? It feels that way. I don't know if Tom's allergic to flour. You can welcome to give him a cake. That kind of glimpse is how the passage feels to us. But I don't think that's what's happening here. What's happening here is the significance of the end of this book of Deuteronomy, the end of the Pentateuch, and the end of Moses himself. And as you get to know Moses, you just realize that he is the mediator of this covenant between Yahweh and his people. He's sworn an oath. He's ratified it. He's served as a man who stands between God and the people as a priest representing them. He's called the people to faithfulness. He's prophetically preached to them. And now as they're about to enter the land, this is the culmination of Moses' mission. And yes, it is a bittersweet picture, but disobedience, Moses knows this more than anyone else, has severe and lasting consequences. And so this is an appropriate end to the book of Deuteronomy. Yahweh speaks to Moses and he tells Moses to do four things, to go up to the mountain, to climb it, Though he's 120 years old, he still has his strength and vitality, as you see in chapter 34, and he's able to still climb a mountain and see clearly. And then he's able to use those still sharp eagle eyes that God has preserved in his head to look at the land of Canaan. And then he's commanded to die on the mountain where he ascended and to be gathered to his people. These four commands are not the absence of God's grace, but a reminder of how seriously God takes sin in his people's lives. It was in Numbers chapter 20 that you can read the story for yourself that's described in this paragraph here of Moses breaking faith with God. Moses, in a classic moment of frustration, uh, is going to supply water to the grumbling and complaining Israelites. And God tells him he's to speak to the rock. And instead of speaking to the rock, he does as the more kind of showy way that he did in a prior incident. He hits the rock with his staff. 
Water flows from the rock. Even though Moses wasn't obedient, God is still merciful. He gives the people water. They call the place Meribah because they've quarreled bitterly. And God tells Moses because of his sin, because he broke faith with God, he will not enter the promised land. This is not an overly harsh consequence if you understand how seriously God takes sin. And by having Moses go up to the mountain and look at it and die and be gathered to his people, God is actually granting Moses a ratification of this promise. You see, to see the land was not just to see and not experience. To see it was to sign the deed. To see the land, in a sense, to look at the land is an extension of grace in and of itself. And it's a reminder that God is going to take these people in for Moses, on Moses' behalf. And how is looking at the land an act of grace? Well, for Moses, in this ancient context, it meant far more than we understand. To view and to see was an act of, Dan Block calls it, anticipated possession. As you think about all that it meant for Moses to be on that mountain, no longer with the people of Israel, all by himself with God and God alone, looking over that promised land, the description given in the account of of chapter 34, looking that goes from horizon to horizon. Look at 34. Now Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo to the top of Pisgah, which is opposite Jericho. And Yahweh showed him all the land, Gilead as far as Dan, the south all the way to the north, the Naphtali and the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, and all the land of Judah as far as the western sea, and the Negev and the plain and the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees as far as Zoar. And Yahweh said to him, this is the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I've let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of Yahweh. You see, looking from horizon to horizon, seeing the richness of the land and the description of Moses' gaze encompassing a promise far more ancient than Moses, going all the way back to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, who are also not there to occupy at this point. They're long gone as well. Seeing is more significant than we realize. What's happening is God is making the death of Moses a notarization of his treaty with Israel, that all his promises will be fulfilled as he will be faithful always to his word. There will be no falling, no failing words, no empty words. And so he has Moses climb up and seal the deal with a final look because seeing and viewing the land was an act of anticipated possession. And what does it mean? You remember when Abraham and Lot in Genesis 13 look over the land to the right and to the left, they possess what they look at. It helps us understand that parable where Jesus tells the, the weary or the leery disciple when he says, before I follow you, I just bought a piece of property. Let me first go and look at it. Well, he wasn't bad at real estate. That was an ancient way of, 
of saying, I bought something and now I need to go finalize the deal. And the way you finalize the deal is by putting eyes on this thing, the viewing, the the formal uh, ratification of the transaction was sealed by Moses climbing up this mountain and looking at all of it in vivid detail in fulfillment to God's promise. It's why the devil took Jesus to the top of the temple and told him to look at all of it as he offered it to the Son of Man as a temptation for him to deny his divine mission. All of this is a reminder that God is extending grace to Moses by reminding Moses that when he goes and dies and is gathered with his forefathers, the mission will continue. God's grace will continue. The people of Israel will continue because God will be with them and for them and he will fulfill all and every one of his promises. It's a beautiful scene. And Moses' looking is Moses' receiving on behalf of the people of God. Verse 5 of chapter 34, So Moses died there in the land of Moab according to the word of Yahweh. And he buried him. Well, that's, that's a he that has no... Who's the he? He buried him. Well, it wasn't Moses that buried Moses because that's hard work to do. Clearly... God himself officiated and attended the funeral of Moses. He buried him in the valley of the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor. But no man knows the burial place to this day. Verse 7, although Moses was 120 years old when he died, his eye was not dim nor his vigor abated. So the sons of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days. And then the days of weeping and mourning for Moses came to an end. Now Joshua, the son of Nun, was filled with the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him. And the sons of Israel listened to him and did as Yahweh had commanded Moses. Just a reminder, God is still in charge. And when the human agent goes off the scene, God raises up another one. And if you flip the page, you see his name is Joshua. He's going to be the one that God is with. Joshua's no Moses, not even close But he is God's man and he will fulfill God's task. And so in this this epilogue, in this eulogy of Moses, there's a description of the one who will follow him. The spirit of wisdom that Moses had will also be on Joshua. And then we get a final statement. I think it's God's take on how we're supposed to understand the Pentateuch, Deuteronomy, and especially Moses. Verse 10. Since then, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses whom Yahweh knew face to face for all the signs and wonders which Yahweh sent him to perform in the land of Egypt against Pharaoh, all his servants and all his land, and for all the mighty power and for all the great terror which Moses performed in the sight of all Israel. The people would be without Moses, but they would have God's grace, God's presence, God's love, God's word, They'd have God's promises inviolable, his word, a stewardship and a treasure. And more than anything else, they would have God himself. We don't have to underestimate the loss of Moses. Moses was a mortal man. He was a sinner. Moses was a prophet. That's what the text says right here. No prophet has arisen in Israel like Moses. But Moses was also a a glimpse 
or a glimmer of someone greater and someone to come. Moses was a mountain of a man. And his final words, the book of Deuteronomy, are a magnificent tribute to this great servant of Yahweh. But I think this book ends with such an appropriate description. That venerated title that Moses gets in in verse five. So Moses, the servant of Yahweh, takes the focus off of Moses and puts it on to the one he served. Moses was a man of God. He was a godly man, but ultimately he was a servant of God, a slave of God. This title is significant because the master is significant. And as God sums up Moses' whole life, he even describes his death as an act of obedience in chapter 32, right? Go, look, die, and be gathered. Moses, in so many ways, was an incomparable man in the history of God's revelation. No prophet, 34.10, has arisen in Israel like Moses, who the Lord knew face to face. Not Abraham, not Jacob, not even Enoch. Moses was a mountain of a man, an incomparable servant of Yahweh, a faithful man, a special man, a leader who is called out, not because of his particular gifts of leadership, though he had great gifts, not because of unique circumstances that made him able to dialogue with Pharaoh in his native tongue and sympathize with his Hebrew people at the same time. But what what made Moses so special, what made Moses so impactful, what made Moses so significant and why God would say such profound things about Moses is because Moses would be, in so many ways, a taste of someone greater to come. I think the reason the Lord himself buried Moses secretly was so that people wouldn't venerate him unnecessarily. They wouldn't make a shrine. They wouldn't try to dig up his bones. It wouldn't become a a point of idolatry. But when we're faced with the death of Moses, we have to think about what comes after. Moses dies on this mountain, and God tells Moses that he wouldn't set a foot in this land. On this side of the promised land, he has to die on the desert side. Because there's something more than Moses, and there's something more for Moses. You see, a time would come when Moses would see the land. Not just with his eyes, but with his feet. Squarely on a mountain. Smack in the middle of the most prime real estate in all of Israel. Not on the Moab side of the Jordan, but on the Jerusalem side. On the Israelite side. He would stand on a mountain and he would see God's promises fulfilled in all their beauty. And he would see a leader for God's people who out paced him and outmatched him in every possible way. Moses would see the beginning and the outworking of the plan that Moses only hinted at in his sermons to these Israelites. Moses would see thousands of years from this moment, a moment when he himself would interact with the Lord Jesus Christ and with the prophet Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration. Moses would touch that ground Moses would see that land. Moses would see that fulfillment. And it was not some mere geographical accomplishment, not at all. It was the servant of Yahweh, Moses, who would be replaced by a far greater servant of Yahweh, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And on that day, on that mountain with Peter, with his mouth gaping open, he would have a conversation with the Lord. According to all three different gospel accounts, they spoke, those three men. Moses would interact with someone who was far more than a servant. He'd interact with someone who was not just a servant of Yahweh, but the son of Yahweh. And Moses would see what we all see tonight, that God's plan that began far, far before in a promise to a foreigner named Abraham would occupy a land that would become a people and a blessing for all the nations and a place where God would act out the gospel of his marvelous grace and send his son to become one of us and bring the good news of the gospel that would start in that land and then envelop the whole earth. Jesus Christ, a greater servant than Moses because he wasn't just a servant, he was a son. And he would take on the sin of the world and die on a cross outside of the city and be made a sacrifice for sin, an incomparable sacrifice that all the offerings and all the sacrifices and all the animals that were killed under Mosaic law and the old system were only prefiguring a greater accomplishment to the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of Yahweh, the servant of Yahweh, the one who would die on a cross in our place and be resurrected by the power of God from the grave and would ascend to sit at God's right hand so that believers in God like Moses of old would see that Jesus is greater than Moses. And so even on a day like today, when rockets are flying in that same land, we can have every confidence that the Prince of Peace will someday again stand on that mountain of olives and he will announce total and final victory over all who oppose him. And in the meantime, we're grateful, grateful for God's grace and grateful for God's promise and grateful that even when we don't have Moses, we have God himself. Father, thank you for your word. And thank you for your grace on display. In these blessings and in this eulogy of this servant of God. Father, thank you for your good word to us tonight. That you are a God who revealed yourself face to face to a servant. And you're a God who led and guided a nation. You're a God who cared for them and watched over them. And accomplished your plan through Abraham, through Moses, and then through your servant David, so that you would bring about your son who would be the heir of all things. And so, Father, be with us tonight as we pray for peace in that land that will ultimately and only come when Jesus rules and finally and fully reigns over us to bring all things, all promises, all your word to complete and total end. We long for that day. We look forward to that day. And we trust you. And we see your gospel spread in the meantime. And we give you all the glory. And we know that we'll find grace. In Jesus' name, amen.